Welcome to the second episode of the Therapy Insights Resource Roadmap Show. We are going to talk about some of the resources in our Access Pass library today in different ways. If you're a member, you have instant access to all the resources that we're discussing today. Um, if you have the printables feature included, and if you're not a member, you can easily go to our website and sign up today. And if you are listening in on a podcast or watching on YouTube and you want CEU credit, just go to our website, therapyinsights.com, go to CEUs, find the pediatric SLP resource roadmap show form and fill that out to get your certificate of completion. I'm your host, Bailey, and we have our writers here today, Heidi and Tasanya. Welcome. Thank you. And Megan is in the background pulling up our resources to display on the screen. Um, and we need to verbalize some disclosures. We're all being paid to run the show and we're also discussing Therapy Insights products today. So we have an exciting collection of resources for this month. We have lots of variety of topics, everything from assessment of pediatric brain injury to articulation to auditory processing. So I'm excited to talk about all those today. Um, let's jump right in. So first we have Articulation Egg Hunt Minimal Pairs Card. So this is a 10 page resource uh, with lots of beautiful pictures um, and the words that go with the pictures. So Tasanya, you created this resource. Can you tell us more about it? Sure. So this resource is for um, families or therapists who are working with children who um, need some help on um, either being able to distinguish between um, two sounds that, that um, can make two similar sounding words different, um, or for um, children who need to work on reorganizing their repertoire of phonemes or sounds. So for this activity, um, the way I would use it is I would cut out the pairs and I would put them into a plastic egg and um, I would make an activity of searching for the eggs. So um, some children benefit from um, like busy, busy work in between the activities. So if you have a child who benefits from gross motor activities, um, along with the communication activities, this is really good for them. So um, I'd approach it two ways. I'd either have them search for the word, um, excuse me, search for the egg. And then when they find the egg, we would work on pronouncing it then, or have them um, search for all the eggs that you've hidden. And then in the end, you sit down together um, and you go over the words. So that's really based on the child and you knowing what their performance levels are and what their needs are. Um, if they do better with very structured tasks, then you collect all the eggs and then you sit down in the end and you go over it. If they benefit from a little bit more of a free styled um, session, I would um, go over each word as I find it. Um, so when going over the words, uh, if the child is new to the whole concept of minimal peers, I would pronounce the words first for them to give them that model. If they need to have um, the the teaching aspect first. If they need to, if they benefit from some verbal cues, visual cues, I'd pronounce it first. And then I'd have them either repeat after me or take a shot at pronouncing it on their own. And as they progress with their ability to do so, then I'd have them work on doing it um, at short phrase level, uh, then sentence level, and then we can carry it over to conversational level task. If I wanted to work on increasing their awareness, I would um, 
I would intentionally pronounce the words wrong. So for example, I would say, um, if I was doing it at a sentence level, I'd say, uh, I was the fastest runner, so I won the lace. And see if the child is able to identify the fact that I said lace instead of race. Um, if I wanted to work on their articulatory precision, I'd do some work on having them um, having them repeat the sound and working on the L phoneme versus the R phoneme, for example. So this is pretty much how I would use these cards. Awesome. I love the real photographs. We talked about that last month. I just love that context. And also, I think this is so versatile because I look at this and I see a lot of language opportunities also. So tying in articulation in language. Um, yeah, this is great. I was just going to say the same thing. Like I know like each month when we go to write or think of content, it's like it comes out a certain month. So you kind of sometimes theme it with the month. But this if you're just listening, this would work for so many things. It's not like all the pictures are for springtime or something. And I think even like you just said, Bailey, that you could use it even, you know, for it has the words written, but it also has the picture. So you could have it for multiple age groups and targeting different, different things. Like I would love to have a set. Well, I will have <laughs> print these and use them, but like to have the child come up with like a third one that could fit in the group or something like that. It's just an easy resource to extend and it's just not stale, like so many articulation flashcard type of activity like the pictures are weird or they're just not that interesting so I really like that this one you know most kids should recognize a lot of these um things because they're they're updated they're not old um, totally and they're in mm -hmm. go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> okay I go <laughs> um I love to laminate as well I think we're all laminating ladies here. So um, if I didn't want to do the the eggs with it, I definitely laminate it and make another game out of it too, um, focused on the awareness aspect of it. So and I, I'd still use the way that it's laid out right now. So I'd probably have like rake and lay um, and lake and ray together and um, have them identify the, the words that sound similar and then tell me what makes them different you know, and working on their awareness for minimal peers. I yeah. think a resource like this is also really um, good for new, like more novice clinicians or right out of school because it lays it, like you're saying, the way the pages print, there are similar types of words together with different positions that are similar, voicing, all those different things. So it really would help you not feel like you're having to, make that up or think of it on your own. And the more you look at, the more I'm sitting here looking at them, the more patterns I'm seeing you could target. So that's a really neat way, kind of like you're saying, to have this just be one of your like tool tools that you just have laminated in a folder or at your desk that like really you could use probably from any kid working on articulation minus a few but it's so it's really helpful that way I think that it's it's very use on your feet which is a skill you just don't that's what you've got to learn when you're starting out as a clinician it's like how do I make this last longer how do I use it for more than one thing so I don't feel like I or and one more than one client so you're not 
spending too much time building and crafting things. (laughs) Being adaptable. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, Heidi, that's so true. And I think like when, you know, when you buy a therapy material, you want it to be, you know, have multiple uses and not just for one narrow sort of uh, session. So yeah, and there's lots of good variety of words here too, which is great. Awesome. Let's move on to the next resource. Oh, before we do that, I want to talk about the article snapshot that one of our writers, Kate Hawkins, wrote this month. And we're talking about it now because it directly relates to Tasanya's resource. Um, It also reminded me of the discussion we had about R last month. Um, So the research article that Kate wrote about is called, it's a tutorial and it's called Using Visual Acoustic Biofeedback for Speech Sound Training. And it was written this year, so it's new research. And the authors essentially gathered research from the past 10 years and kind of put it all together. I thought that was really cool. Um, And I'm gonna use the acronym VAB, V-A-B, just for sake of brevity for um, visual acoustic biofeedback. So they basically found that using VAB is another helpful, helpful modality to support students with speech sound disorders who may not respond well to more traditional therapy practices. And this is specifically with R. And as we talked about last time, We can all probably agree that R is the most challenging sound to work on. You can't see it. Um, So this is a a nice tool, I think, to use um, so that the child can actually see the movement. Um, The article mentioned an app called Start and the R is capitalized. It's by Bits Lab. And I actually tried to download it on my computer, but it's more compatible for iPad. And my iPad is so old, I I just couldn't get it. So, um, but the article did have like a screenshot of the um, app and it looks really neat. It looks engaging, user-friendly, um, but it uses biofeedback for R with um, pictures and such. So the authors also said that it's important to select an appropriate target for each child to try and match. The same template should not be used for all children because formant frequencies are impacted by vocal tract size, which makes total sense. Um, And they also said that when possible, the clinician should reference the LPC spectrum. So LPC is linear predictive coding. And I definitely had to do my research on that because I haven't had acoustics in a long time, (laughs) Um, but it makes sense. It's just kind of a dynamic analysis of speech that gives you this visual representation um, while suggesting an articulator placement cue. So to finish that thought, put that all together. um, The example they gave is try moving your tongue back and watch what happens to the wave. So the clinician and client are sitting there uh, the clinician gives that verbal prompt and they're both watching the wave um, as the child is producing the R sound. Similar to more traditional speech sound interventions, the use of structured practice schedule and appropriate feedback are keys for success and utilization of VAB for sound acquisition and generalization learning. So um, to add to that, the authors mentioned that there isn't like an agreed upon consensus of like how many trials to do in a session with, with this, uh, but they did say um, 150 trials is what you should aim for. So pretty intensive, I thought, um, which is pretty common for articulation. But I thought, I just, I've always been interested in like ultrasound and, and VAB with with um, with R production specifically. I've never had hands-on experience. I've never really seen it, but I'm glad it's being studied. And from the article, I think it's been studied for several decades now. So um, technology is obviously improving. Um, and I think it could be a great tool um, to use just for kids that pesky are that 
this might not respond to traditional therapy practices. So the study did show that um, VAB can be effective for that. Um, Heidi and Tasanya, have you ever seen VAB or ultrasound for R? No. I'm really no. curious. Like you said, yeah. it's, it's, I've heard about it. I heard about it in grad school. Like I knew it existed, but it didn't seem practical unless you worked in like certain places that had this machine so if you're talking about it somehow being able to convert to an app like how helpful that would be kids mm -hmm. love technology I mean that's not mm -hmm. hard to get buy-in on technology from most kids and like you're saying and like I think this article talks about it is actually pretty impactful I mean it can really turn the corner for some kids so but it was always like well I don't have one of those machines like in the yeah. closet at school to be like holding and so that's maybe this is an exciting kind of start to a new era with that um, yeah. where it kind of moves out of the research realm into practical easy use which would be awesome mm -hmm. yeah I agree with Heidi I haven't really seen it outside of research you know in doctoral program and stuff reading up on it but I've never seen it in practice. Yeah. And like you were saying, Heidi, like, I, I guess I, in my mind, I have this, this ultrasound machine and it's connected and it's cumbersome. And the, the article did mention that. And I think this VAB specifically, the acoustic piece is what kind of sticks out and what's the newer technology. So it's not just the visual, um, but it's interesting too. It sounds like a little training would have to be done because the authors emphasize like the clinician and the client need to understand what they're looking at and understand that vi that visual representation of the sound. So um, a little bit of legwork, I guess, up front, but I think, like you said, it could be super useful. And it seems like the app is a great start for that. So thank you all for your input on that. Let's move on. So our next resource is self-sufficient teams, executive functioning tasks, targeting care plans, medication management, and self-regulation. This is a two-page resource, um, and the first has just some info on it, and then the uh, second page has um, a nice chart. And Heidi, you wrote this, so can you tell us more about it? Yeah, so kind of the idea, like when um, our subscribers vote or send ideas of things that they're interested in, we get a lot asking for the older kid, you know, teenagers, not everything for babies or little ones. So that's kind of how this... Um, came to be an executive functioning I think you know this is helpful for any teenager probably on some level because I don't know that anymore with all of the apps and tech we're just talking about the benefits of technology kind of the flip side of that is it almost seems like it's easier to be organized and remember everything because you can put it in your phone or your mom or dad or grandma can text and remind you to do things so this resource kind of is to give just an easy basic level activity like to start from the beginning of how would I think through my day and things that I need and this one is more tailored to those like maybe medical tasks or um, appointments things that aren't it's not really geared for school it's kind of those things like going to school would be one of your activities I was envisioning for this um, the chart that's on the second page but it's more those other tasks that make your day different maybe than the kid next to you. Um, so kind of, I did a how-to guide so that it didn't feel like you were just starting from from zero, from square one, sorry. So um, kind of sitting with your client and brainstorming and seeing where their understanding is of like, what are the parts of your day? Because I think a lot of times with this population, 
because they're closer to an adult age, you assume they're thinking through all of these things, but they maybe aren't. Like, what what do you have to do in a day? Okay, so kind of listing those with them. Um, and that's things like medications or therapy appointments, um, or, you know, it could be picking up a sibling somewhere, things like that. Um, then the other kind of giving the next level is working through working through the worksheet or this list that you create and label like needs versus wants. I think sometimes, again, we might assume that um, a teenager would have that higher level reasoning to think I need this versus I just want to do this. Like I want to go to the skate park after school. That's not, maybe that is actually a need for them because they've been cooped up all day. So kind of starting and having those discussions. So you get a better idea of what, where their functioning level is, because I think that is hard with teenagers and kids in general, you know, we, we assume we know or whatever. Um, and again, being able to have kind of that more adult conversation of like want activities versus need. Um, then the goal kind of of the whole, the graph has the different, um, it says the time of day, it has the task, the steps, and then if you like a checkbox for completion. So um, I think that's really helpful uh, to think through. So that's what you're trying to get them. Then once you have the list of things to say, okay, well, is there a time attached to that? What is the task you need? What are the steps? And again, that's kind of going into more of a behavior, like what are big steps you need to complete that task? And then, you know, a checkbox at what time you did it. Um, and then you can also, this is obviously something they should do as well with their parents or caregivers at home and over time or throughout the activity, you should, you know, the first task I have here. So at eight o'clock, I need to take my Adderall. So I need to let my mom know that I need it out of the cat, you know, out of the cabinet. I get my, and then I need to make sure that I drink a glass of water or I eat a small snack. And then it was by 8.15, I was done. Um, so that's the example I provide there for you guys to see and see what I'm kind of thinking in my head. Um, and again, the goal is not for a kid to need to do this every day or all the time. It's saying that hopefully once you've sat down and broken this task or a day down, it doesn't feel so overwhelming. And then some of these things move from like, a I need a constant reminder to do it to like, that's just part of my routine. And I can sort of think through this hierarchy of needs and wants on my own. That would be sort of where you would get to them accomplishing the goal um, that you might have set for them over the course of using this resource. So it would be something you worked through pretty intently, like the first couple of sessions. And then as you go, you're kind of more looking for the feedback from them. Like, are you using this still? Or is it you kind of don't need it anymore? Or you add it, you know, can we add other things to it to help you? Um, and the goal, we made it really visually pleasing. It's, it's not, it, you know, it's got some little <laughs> graphics on it. So you could definitely hang it up somewhere, you know, on the fridge or maybe in their, uh, somebody's, you know, their bathroom or in their personal space, but where other people can see it and it's functional. I think sometimes checklists or these types of activities we do in isolation with patients and client or clients. And then it feels like, okay, well, I just did that assignment and now I put it in the trash. So like trying to make a conscious effort to, um, put it somewhere that they would use it, but it doesn't feel like a baby's schedule or something, I guess, is what we were trying to avoid. So 
anyways, I mean, the goal, again, at the end here, it kind of says on the first page of instructions, it says seeing if they can plan out another day by themselves, like that would be their homework assignment or a week, you know, you could level this up or down as you wanted to. That's awesome, Heidi. Yeah, I like how it's laid out. It's just very simple. Um, and I, I love how you put the, the guide on the front page. Um, and it just gives a good starting point. And I like that you can just reuse it over and over and it's something that can be long lasting. And I mean, I find myself making lists with the time and like just for my myself to function as an adult. Um, but yeah, this is great. You know, Heidi, I really like this. I can think of um, certain populations of students who can use it, especially, I don't know about other regions, but in New York, uh, many of the schools are giving the students planners and some of them don't know how to use it either yeah. because they're not using it efficiently. Sometimes because they, they may have like ADHD or they may have other components that, that um, contributes to them having difficulty with organization. So I would definitely use this to teach them how to use those planners um, so they're more productive in their day. Some of them have to document their assignments in it and um, they're not successful with it. So I would use this, I would laminate it and do, see, I'm always laminating something. <laughs> I would laminate it and use a dry erase marker and, you know, go over it a few times with them to show them how to actually use this. I really like it. I did think of those planners when I was making this because I can't <laughs> believe they, they still give them out and they're so overwhelming. Like I never, when I was in the high schools, no mm -hmm. one knew what they, I mean, it was like, I guess I'll write my homework here. Does that help me? I, you know, it, it didn't, there wasn't a lot of teaching time around it. And so for those students that are struggling with those skills, it, this, yeah, it was kind of where I was like, what would I do differently if I was handing those planners out again? And I was like, I probably have a whole little lesson about how to, how to exactly. use it. So, yeah. I think the simpler, the better. Sure. And they're starting young. They have them from like elementary school. Oh, okay. Yeah. I think like I've seen like third graders with it. So I think this is really good to help them learn how to use it effectively. Mm -hmm. All right, let's move on to the next resource. This is called Auditory Processing and Language Development. <clears throat> this is a nice one page resource with lots of great info divided into different paragraphs, uh, different subtitles. Tasanya, you were the author of this. Can you talk more about it, please? Sure. Uh, so with auditory processing, sometimes what caregivers say is that, um, you know, um, James is just not listening. No matter what I do, he's not listening. And hearing was tested and the doctor said hearing was totally fine, but he's just not hearing. And as professionals, um, we may be able to identify um, that there is an auditory processing component, but it's just not diagnosed yet. So I might use this um, when helping a family to um, seek services to have their child assess auditory processing or to help them to understand what to expect and how to help their child to continue to develop um, their language while they're either going through the assessment process or even after a diagnosis, just helping them with some strategies so they can continue to be successful in the academic setting and even in social settings. So um, I'd, I'd also print this out and I'd give it to anyone who's involved in, um, in the academic setting with teaching the child or being around the child. So whether it's a teacher, 
It might be a set, um, a special education instructor, a para, the physical education teacher, anyone who's involved with that child's um, academic day and helping them to um, have a better, a more successful day. So for example, um, it talks about how skill therapy can help a child who has auditory processing disorder. It can, it talks about assistive technology such as FM systems and how those can help with either amplifying sounds or with helping them to tune out sounds that may be um, causing more distractions or difficulty with um, the academic day. Also strategies to adapt environment so that the child is able to be more successful in the classroom with learning and also self-advocacy. And self-advocacy is really important because um, some children become, um, they, they, there's a situation, there's a, a component of learned helplessness. Um, and I feel like if we are able to give families and individuals who are experiencing these things, um, techniques uh, to help them to advocate for themselves, they can become more successful in the academic setting. So there's some strategies here for self-advocacy. Um, yeah, so again, I just either hand it out to caregivers, I bring it to the school setting, I give it to other family members who the child may be around. Sometimes we have grandparents or babysitters who care for them after school and they're working with them on homework. And here's some strategies that you can keep in mind when you're working with Sarah on her homework. Yeah, that's how I use it. This is like, I just feel like there's so much we wanna share with everybody. Like, I feel like, um, yeah. And I, I think this, this reminds me of, we're talking last month about fluency and just, this kind of helps like bridge the gap from, you know, therapy to all the other people that the child interacts with and just advocating for them and giving those people the information um, so they can kind of modify how they, you know, interact with the child. Um, yeah, this is great info. I like how you divided it into sections like the skill therapy, assistive technology, adaptations, and then self-advocacy. Like that's very nicely outlined there. Um, Thanks. What's great. Cheryl's experience? Like I remember very distinctly in grad school many years ago that they were, you know, there were two camps about auditory processing. It was very strange. I was like, I mean, I was in school, so I didn't really... And I hadn't been out in the field, like seeing the kids. I mean, I'd worked with kids prior to that. And I just think this is a nice resource to like, it's non-controversial. It's just pointing out strategies. Like it doesn't, you know, it doesn't peg on whether you believe it's a real thing or not. It's just saying like, these are strategies that people could use. Um, therapy could help them. And yes, same. I mean, I think it doesn't matter whether somebody believed that diagnosis was a truly medical diagnosis or not, whether the child should advocate for themselves. So I think that um, it's not, and I know when you look out in the literature and in like resource areas, things for auditory processing can be hard to find or they're very mm -hmm. narrow and maybe a little bit agenda driven. This is not like that. It's mm -hmm. sort of just like, this is what's going on, you know, <laughs> take these <laughs> strategies if you want them. It, it doesn't, um, kind of blame or go one way or the other. I don't know yeah. if you guys have any comments on that. It's, I've, I don't know where it kind of sits now in the community, but. Yeah, I don't, Tasanya, I don't know what your thoughts are. I, I was going to say same thing, Heidi. I was going to bring that up. Like 
it's, I get that icky stomach feeling when I hear auditory processing, because I've been like told it's not real, but then there have been other um, settings I've worked in where like we had an auditory, auditory processing test, like a valid test um, and clients on our caseload with that. And we had certain treatments that we would do for them. So it is confusing and it's, it's not clear. Um, I, th- I think in grad school, I was told like, it's not, it's not a thing. It's on a real diagnosis. It's made up. So I don't know what currently is going on with that. Wow. I don't know. Um, you know, we're going to, we're going to come to this topic several times, like with our field and how there's always this debate on what's real and what's not real and which technique we should do and what we shouldn't do. And it's like, make up your mind already. <laughs> but the, <laughs> I, I really think for the most part, like our field is so driven by research. And if there isn't a healthy body or a large body of research on it, you're going to have half or a quarter of the population of, of specialists that will say it's not existent. And then you'll have the other half who are like clinical and dealing with it. And you're like, it does exist, mm-hmm. but the clinical half is not doing the research. And the half that's doing the research is doing it in like a very isolated laboratory setting. So mm-hmm. we're always going to have this debate. Um, whether it's real or not, I, I know people who specialize in just auditory processing. And I've, I've seen children who, um, are treated for it and they make progress. So I don't know if maybe the treatment they're receiving is is treating something else and they're just making progress. I don't know, I can't answer the question. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do know that, uh, I do know several people, um, you know, around the US who, who specialize in this. And mm-hmm. I have seen some children who present with like these characteristics of auditory processing disorder. And when they have, um, you know, when they receive the the treatment that's out there for it, they do make progress, you know, or that you do see some type of changes when they're, for example, if they use assistive technology, you see some progress. If they have those adaptations, they might, in their environment, you might see some performance progress. But mm-hmm. I just think there's so much things within our field that are always going to be debatable. And it's largely because, we don't have a our our research is still growing, mm-hmm. and we don't have we have a lot of amazing clinicians who are dealing with the working with these things, and they just have no interest in doing research. Mm-hmm. And then we have a large body of amazing researchers who are not interested in being clinicians, and mm-hmm. there's like no in between. Mm-hmm. So I feel like we're always going to have these gaps until our research develops. Maybe mm-hmm. when our little ones are are. Our, our stage in life, <laughs> they may have the answer to that. Maybe they might yeah. say, yeah, they may have yeah. a different answer to that. Yeah. Maybe more people get into SLP and, and develop that even more. Yeah. yeah that, that's a good, this is a good, good talk. I mean, definitely could probably have a whole episode just on auditory processing. So. Yeah. I mean, some people feel like um, AS, ASD, like autism doesn't exist. They're like, it's not a real thing. It's like, there's all these debates on it. You know, this, I feel like there's always going to be a position on it because people will always say it's something else. It's not this, it's that, but yeah. it just looks like it, you know? Right. It's always extreme. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Good comments. Um, let's go on to the next resource. So this is comprehensive assessment tools for pediatric traumatic brain injury. This is a four page resource. The first two pages have a lot of great info and text and just information to kind of set you up for the last pages, um, which are, there's a data tracking chart and then there's a parent caregiver questionnaire. Um, Heidi, you wrote this, tell us more. 
Okay, well, this is definitely created from my own practice, not feeling like I had a lot of resources for pediatric TBIs. Also, um, a lot of reader feed or subscriber feedback that they wanted more because there just there isn't a lot. Um, so the goal of this whole four page thing, this resource is to think through like, what is a comprehensive assessment tool or what does a comprehensive assessment include? Because you don't always have a standardized option where you practice or where you, uh, you know, the, every child with a TBI is going to be extremely different. And you definitely don't need to dig into all of these eight or so areas I go through to have a comprehensive assessment. But this is trying to say, okay, how can I have somebody come in and feel like I have different tools available to me to assess them and then measure their progress so that I know if we're making progress or not. Um, so it kind of talks, there are a handful. So I will say there are um, a couple and it lists the standardized assessment tools here. There's the pediatric test of brain injury and that's the one I'm most familiar with. I've used that in a couple settings now. There's the behavioral rating index of executive function, the student functional assessment of verbal reasoning and executive functioning and the test of everyday attention, which I think that those aren't all specific to pediatrics either. So you are looking at that discrepancy of like, this isn't really designed for kids, but it's the best we've got. So we're going to use it. Um, again, my experience is there, they can take a long time. They can, they any, all kids with brain injuries, probably like attention span is an issue. So to be able to get an accurate assessment from these long standardized tests became prohibitive in my practice. So that's where I kind of dug into the next, um, how this resource plays out. Um, so there's, there's also a validity and a need to, and I didn't think about it when I was first starting out, but having parents or caregivers fill out something that describes what their behavior is from an outside perspective. So that's definitely a piece you want. So if you can, you do a standardized assessment, um, but no matter whether you do or don't, it kind of walks you through how you should do some sort of parent giver, parent or caregiver questionnaire. Um, and it lists a free one that you can just download um, kind of off the internet if you have access. It's called the Family Needs Questionnaire, the pediatric version. Um, so that's something, I mean, we don't put those on our website, but that gives you the name. So in theory, you could go out and locate that yourself. Um, so if you did all these standard assessments, kind of look at the goals and target areas, like what subtests they struggled the most on. And then kind of my goal was to think, okay, how do we take all that information and put it into a clinical practice? So selecting their three to four highest needs areas, where did their scores come back the lowest on those um, assessments and discuss the challenges in the home or school setting so that you can think through what are reasonable goals you could set that aren't abstract or just arbitrary based on like, I want them to say five numbers in a row back to me. That's not, how would you write that to say something more meaningful? Like they could tell me, you know, remember mom's phone number in case they lost their cell phone or something useful like that. Um, and then the goal of the resource then is 
you create four non-standardized kind of assessment items that you can use weekly or say you didn't have any of the standard assessment options. You could just make these yourself um, and go forth and measure and treat using those um, the information you got. And the big thing for me is functionality. So the next page two of the resource starts with a little flow sheet. So it gives you a spot you can think through what is the standardized assessment results that you got. You don't have to write it verbatim or by numbers, but just like did poorly in these three areas. Um, the other right below that, it's saying, what are three challenges that the child or their family has identified in the home environment? So you kind of put them there, you think through, and then below there are the like 10 or 11 areas that could be impacted by a TBI. Not those should be mostly inclusive, but maybe there could be others. And picking just two or three of those and then creating a task that's going to measure that. So the areas we go through and give you ideas on our orientation kind of that would be pretty extreme if they're still if you're seeing them in an outpatient setting. But if you're in an inpatient setting, making sure they can orient to the environment, person, place, time, um, following commands, naming, um, kind of like that longer the memory task of like, okay, say, um, can you list 10 words that start with the letter M and how long it takes them or give them one minute, see how many they do. Um, word fluency, oh, that's, I've kind of given that I skipped the <laughs> morph two together. So naming would just be categories like name 10 foods or whatever. And then word fluency is that time piece. Um, then convergent and divergent tasks, which are always hard for me sometimes on the fly to remember which one goes which way and all those things. So this kind of lays out um, some of the examples of those types of activities. Um, and all of these tasks, in theory, you could just use an everyday activity as well. It's not something you're sitting making up. It's just, oh, play that game or do that activity, and then you're going to be able to assess this area. Um, so divergent task, it's more create a story and share it with me or plan. It's those open-ended tasks. Can they do all the pieces they would need to plan a party or a meal or make a menu at a restaurant? Um, and then also like the providing multiple stimuli and then which one doesn't go here? Um, so that's a good measure assessment tool for divergent tasks, digital recall or digit recall. We talked about that already. Um, that immediate retelling, so short-term memory, and then the delayed, like at the end of the session, I'm going to also ask you these things. Um, and then picture recall. Can For kids that don't read, that might be a better option is like, I'm going to show you a picture, we're going to draw it together, and then at the end of the session, I'm going to take it away. You know, you'll have it taken away and see if they can draw it or recreate it. Um, and then the four areas of attention. So this resource was overwhelming to create, I think for me, because I was trying to capture a lot. So maybe thinking of it as like a starting, like a general intro level, if you're thinking about whether it would be useful to you, it's kind of helping you think through how to get that repertoire of tasks that you could have to easily pull if you had a kid come in for an assessment or if you're treating them actively, how do we work through the different areas that we would think could be impacted if they had a TBI? Um, and then you just engage in those tasks as they come to their sessions each week or however often they're coming. Um, 
make sure you're providing some sort of carryover to home that parents can report back to you how it went or their caregiver or their teacher. Um, obviously always employing that principle of gradual release. So hopefully each week they're doing more and more on their own or getting better. Um, and then generalization is a big piece for these patients because it's hard to capture them making progress and you can't just have them sit on your caseload for indefinite periods of time and everyone kind of feels like, are we getting anywhere? Um, then there's a data tracking sheet, that's page three. So it just gives you, you can write like four dates, what activity you were doing, and then the completion time and their accuracy, which are really often the main things you wanna measure with TBI. Um, and then you adjust your tasks as needed and kind of work through their different challenge areas. And then, as I mentioned earlier, there is a standardized family needs questionnaire, but I did provide one at the end of the, the page four is like a six question. If you don't have access to that or you just want to print this resource and go, you kind of have all the big pieces and you still have to do some legwork on your own. But I think it the goal was to help you conceptualize the whole treatment and care plan for someone that's coming in exclusively with like a TBI if their kid. Thanks, Heidi. That was, it's, it's such a robust resource. <laughs> Lots of great details. Um, I've, it's not um, a case I would usually see where I work, but um, super interesting and good to have um, in our toolbox. I don't know, Tasanya, if you see a lot of TBI. Yeah, so Heidi, this is brilliant. I, I had to grab my pen to write something. Like, it's so true that there aren't really many um, batteries that are that are peds friendly. Mm -hmm. So you know, you have your CLQT, and now you have your what's this? The CATPT. You have your comprehensive assessment tool for pediatric TBI. <laughs> uh, but seriously, um, and I like how you always you always create these really cute graphs um, the way you lay it out. But I can totally see a lot of interns who are doing their, um, their external practicums or even fellows using this tool um, to, assess, um, to assess some of their patients. And the questionnaire is what I really like as well. Um, that way you can, get the, you can get some insight from the caregiver as well, because we don't always get what we're looking for at that one moment in time when we're doing the assessment especially in the, in the hospital setting um, where you can't always like a full battery. Sometimes just the, the, the mm -hmm. intake form from the caregiver or from the patient is what gives you the meat of what you're looking for. So I really, really, really like this. I really do. Thank this, I, was, <laughs> this one took me of uh, many resources we have written. This was one of the, I wasn't losing sleep over it, but I was thinking about how to make this useful because it's so... You know, so maybe we should call it like part one with more <laughs> more build out to come because I'm even reading it now like, oh, I should have. But it, that's how little, like you're saying to Tanya, that there's just not a lot and it's, it's not practical fun. for kids. Mm -hmm. It's not helpful mm -hmm. for therapists and it feels so um, rigid, I guess, is, mm -hmm. you know, it's like, okay, cool. We can list numbers and you can name a bunch of stuff but okay let's just use that as the task to measure your progress but also what could we find what else could we do that actually is something you do in your life where you need that skill and that's where the breakdown is occurring so you know mm -hmm. yeah maybe we'll call this part one <laughs> <That's> <laughs> I, I already know more I want to do with it but <laughs> 
you should definitely take this somewhere. And the other thing is like, to be realistic in the hospital setting, we don't really do like a full battery because it's kind of almost pointless to do it or not pointless. I don't want people to attack me, but uh, you can't always complete it. But the good thing about it is when we do a battery is because we are trying to get, um, we're trying to create goals for the patient. And this is, that's why I really love this because what you're really doing here is creating goals. You're creating goals for the patient, for the child. So I really, really like this. Thank you. Yeah, this is, it's such a complex thing that you're assessing. I mean, like you said, part one. Um, and Tasanya, what you said about uh, the, the parent caregiver questionnaire and just the background and history, sometimes that's all you can get out of an eval. I've been there many times and not just with, with TBI, with other areas, but yeah, that's, that's a great point too. Awesome resource. Okay, let's move on to our last resource. Heidi, this is you again. Uh, this one is titled Homework. Oh, I'm sorry, Tasanya. Is that no, you? no, no, Heidi. Heidi, Heidi. It's, yes. it's written wrong on the screen. Yeah. Oh, okay. um, so it's titled Homework Planner Organizational Chart for Pediatric Patients to Support Executive Functioning. I love all this executive functioning. This is awesome. Um, so it's a three-page resource, and we have some nice charts. Uh, there's a homework helper table on the second page and a project mapping table on the last page of the first page. Um, Give some nice examples of how to use those. So Heidi, um, tell us more. Well, it's nice that this one, um, obviously I had a theme this month <laughs> that I ran with, but <laughs> I think people, there's just not a lot to use that's um, easy for clinicians to just take and go or to give to kids or their families to work on these things. So this one is more, um, probably could be used with any age kid, but it's it's more school-based. I mean, it's for your homework planning and organize, organizing those things. Um, so the helper table has the subject in class, the assignment title, due date. And then I, I wanted them to have to think through, like, is this a short-term project or a long-term project? Like, because I think that's a skill a lot of kids miss. Um, that when you're talking about, we've had this theme today of like the planners. Um, I don't think a lot of kids, it's like, I'm going to write it once, but it's like, maybe that needs to be written every day for five days because I need to be doing it every day. And then kind of getting that executive functioning there of like, how much time do you think it's going to take you to do this? Um, and that you really would encourage them to be honest with themselves and say, you know, if they think it's going to take 10 minutes, let them write 10 minutes there. And then if they go home and realize it's 30, that's a conversation to have, you know, like, hey, what, what, why did you think it would take less time, you know, to kind of get them to have that deeper self-awareness of their own um, ability their daily progress of the dates they completed it, or I worked on it for 10 minutes and got tired. They could also write that in. And then my favorite thing when I was a special ed teacher was I did the assignment, but I don't know where I put it. Um, so there's a little, there's one of the columns is to say, where did I put it? So the example here is I put it in my binder in the social studies section. Um, so Again, the goal is not for any kid to use this every day for months on end. It's that let's go back to the beginning because we assume a child can do this or we assume they understand these things and maybe they don't. Teen elementary school, I mean, obviously this isn't really a fit for little younger kids, but um, like K to three, might that, this is probably too much for them. But older than that um, should be able to handle it. And then I have a second, the third page in the resource, if you print it out, is more for those tests and project mapping, because that is a different plan 
than your daily homework. Um, so it kind of shows you, okay, so the example is I have a math test on triangles. The next column says due dates or test date and the days to go. So March 4th, 2023, I have 15 days left. Um, and then kind of having them write that plan of action. I think studying is such an abstract concept, but I can't even imagine honestly trying to study if I had a laptop as a kid, you know, if that was one of my main resources to be looking at content from school, that would be really difficult for me. So this kind of takes away, they don't need any of that stuff to fill this out, but so if we're doing a math test on triangles, it would be, okay, I need to review my equilateral triangles, my isosceles, my obtuse, there's probably more. I just, this was my basic example. And then some ideas, like I could do practice problems from my textbook, or I could have a study group with friends to go over the, the problems together. So again, trying to get them to think through those task analysis. What would I need to do to get to this bigger goal? And then the fourth column for the project and test is saying, what are successes and growth areas? Because I think that is something we could spend more time with our older clients working on with that. Like, what you got to tell me what you're doing good. You, you know, more positive feedback often leads to better outcomes anyway, but they need to do that for themselves as well, especially not to veer off into some other topic, but you know, teens are really struggling right now um, from a mental health perspective. So teaching them like how to identify things they're good at. And instead of saying failures or I need to get better, what are areas you can grow in? Cause it's sort of planting that seed that you can improve this, you can do it better. So what are those things we need to do? So I just the example I gave, I'm getting all the questions right about my equilateral triangles. I feel good about those. And then having that conversation, okay, well, that means you probably don't need to study those as much anymore. Um, and then another one here, example, I'm finishing the problems in less than five minutes each. So I should be able to finish the test in a class period. Um, I'm struggling with the isosceles triangle, so I should probably review those more. And again, they don't have to write every single thing out about each of these activities, but I think this just gives us as the clinician a way to start, somewhere to start that breaks these tasks down and helps us see where they're falling apart. Because that was that's always, the, as we talked with the resource I talked about first today, um, the executive functioning tasks sheet. It, it's hard sometimes to figure out in these higher level tasks where it's falling apart. So hopefully through using either of these charts, you get a better idea and then you can help jump in right there. Um, obviously gradual release, another theme of my <laughs> month making these, um, sometimes these tables or these categories aren't going to work for every child. So how could they even make their own? Like, what do you need to have written out to be successful? Um, again, not just for homework, this could be for any, you know, say they're applying to summer jobs or doing something like that. You could use this as well. Um, you can also add that task completion check-in if you needed to. The other thing I think with these types of activities that I've seen myself falling apart, I guess, when I was trying to work through them with a child is the planning process when it's an independent skill for the child should not take longer than the tasks you're putting into the table. You don't want this disconnect of like, oh, I'm gonna spend 25 minutes filling out my planner, leaving me only 10 minutes to actually work on my review problems. I think that is something I used to get caught in a lot more um, without that awareness of like, wow, I did this activity, but I didn't really, that's not going to be functional for them if it's still taking them 20 minutes to fill it out. So just being aware of that. 
um, and kind of thinking back to those physical planners or just the way things are structured today, it's like, you don't need to be getting fancy with a bunch of colors, descriptions, or the table filling in process. You're trying, this is supposed to be a big picture task that we've given some guidelines and exemplars here, but that might not be what works for you. But again, your goal from using this resource is to target where are things falling apart for them? Is it their time management, their long-term planning skill, their organization of like where things go or they can't see that they're doing anything right or doing everything wrong. So anyways, yeah, it's a, I really like how our graphic designer, it's really approachable. It doesn't feel boring and stuffy either. It's light colored and cute. So. Agreed. Yeah, very engaging. This is awesome, Heidi. Um, we are a little short on time, y'all. So let's move on. Uh, we are going to talk about our case study. So every month we like to make a case study. And this gives us a way to talk about other resources in our library. Um, and also just a way to talk about potential cases we might run into and talk about it from different clinical perspectives, different angles. So the case study for this month, uh, Megan, if you could pull that up, please. Thank you. So I'll read it. A five-year-old male given a recent diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder from a child psychologist who recommended comprehensive evaluations for all services, OT, PT, speech, and feeding. Child is non-speaking and primarily uses signs, gestures, body language, and grunts to communicate. The child psychologist who evaluated him also recommended applied behavioral analysis or ABA therapy due to self-harm behaviors. His parents are hesitant about this particular therapeutic approach. They feel this will create anxiety in their child based on anecdotes from other parents, but they are open to learning more about this type of treatment. So the three of us picked out resources from our library that would relate to this potential case. Um, I chose, um, Megan, I think the first one is what I chose. Yes, so I chose this handout it's called Roles on an Interdisciplinary Team Supporting Patients on the Autism Spectrum. So I like this handout because it's just a nice reference for parents, caregiver, caregivers, and family to go back to if um, maybe they, and I don't want to speak out of term, maybe if they feel overwhelmed by this new diagnosis and there's all these professionals that their child interacts with, they have different services, and it's just sometimes a lot to keep up with, I, I would think. Um, at least I've seen that in my experience. So I like how the handout, it discusses potential professionals on the child's team and what those professionals do. So SLP, OT, pediatrician, et cetera. Um, so the parents can kind of keep track. Okay. My kid is seeing this person and they're doing this. And this is why they're seeing this person and what they're doing, what they're how they're helping my child. So I like this as um, just a, a reference for them to go back to. Um, I can, what's on the next slide is that I think to Sonia, you had a few, you had a few yeah. resources um, that relate yeah, I think I wrote all the rest of our um, art that we have from the archives, but um, because it's a topic that autism is a topic that everyone has an opinion about, but not many answers to. So mm -hmm. I just like it's good to have like a lot of resources for family and, and they're all written in a manner like as a handout for the most part to help um, to minimize burnout that caregivers get when um, when working with your children who are who have these diagnoses. So um, in order to care for someone else, you have to be able to care for yourself. You have to be in a good mental 
mental, physical, emotional state too, uh, because you don't want to take out any negative feelings that you may have on the child who's not intentionally uh, carrying out behaviors that may come along with the diagnoses, such as the um, self-inflicted behaviors that I mentioned in the case study, for example. Um, so this is why I picked this one, you can go and to the other one. Oh, this go ahead, is, so, uh, yeah. So this one, um, just to kind of give you a visual for those listening in, it's a two page resource called management of caregiver burnout with, um, some really nice strategies, um, and then tips. And then the second page has those strategies listed out, um, easy to read. Um, but yeah, go, go on to the next one for sure. I know we're short on time. The other one where it's called routines to implement into the academic day, for children with ADHD. And even though our case study is a child diagnosed with autism, um, sometimes some of the experiences between autism and ADHD are similar. Um, they're totally different diagnoses, totally different experiences, but sometimes as caregivers, um, you may experience similar uh, situations. So this, this one, for example, it lists ways that you can identify your child's strengths and weaknesses, um, creating a plan to help your child to deal with and identify those challenges, building their self-esteem, um, always about advocating and building self-esteem, taking breaks to help them uh, to have a successful day, creating incentives, a bedtime routine, and managing your child's nutrition. And we can go on to the other one. I know we're short on time. Uh, so the reason why I picked this one, this one is called Including Pet Therapy into Expressive Language Goals for American Sign Language Communicators. Uh, I, this is one that I had written specific for ASL communicators because it's not much for that population. But the reason why I think it's good for this case is because the child uses signs based on what, was me what the family mentioned. Um, and sometimes the reason why children with a um, ASD uh, they have these uh, clinical outbursts or these behaviors where they're inflicting uh, pain on themselves or where they're, they're uh, carrying out what's believed to be dangerous behaviors is because they can't communicate. So if the child is communicating, we want to help the family to learn how to continue to communicate via this method of communication, which is signing for the child. Um, it didn't specify if the family was using ASL or if it was baby sign or if it was just gestures. However, uh, it's just a resource that this family could use to continue to nurture that child's specific method of communication along with whatever other methods they're trying to work on developing. I think the others are, are Heidi's going to present. That's such a unique resource. I love that. Heidi, yours is positive parenting strategies for parents of children with developmental delays. Yeah, definitely. I, like we said, that case study was kind of overwhelming for parents. So I picked this one. It's a just a one page handout again, just to support those parents. Um, and it's for, it says strategies for with developmental delays, but it, again, good parenting or good strategies. It's not diagnosed or diagnosis specific. Um, and again, I, if these, I find so many parents are overwhelmed by these diagnoses diagnoses and it feels so negative that this mm. one is really saying like your child does have strengths like here's what you you do have in your control is how you interact with them you maybe can't control how many specialists they're going to need or all the things that are coming up next um but it says you know identify the root behavior communicate with your child model target behaviors positive discipline and celebrate and reward and again this is a great just like overview of a starting point so parents could feel like okay i have something i can do now to help this mm -hmm. yeah 
So the other one is, um, this one is another just one page handout, really like I think our resource, the resources are for the parent at this current stage because you can't speed everything up to get the treatment all the time right away. Um, mm -hmm. So what can you do if tantrums and frustrations in nonverbal children? Um, and it just has very four big areas that you can help the parent know how to take the next step. Um, and again, like Tasanya's other resources, resource identified, communication is probably a big reason they're having some of the meltdowns. So kind of like, okay, let's identify the patterns. Let's use multiple methods of communication. Um, and that's sometimes new to parents, if they, especially if they have another child that's completely verbal with no um, communication challenges. Clarity and clear communication. And it, just a reminder, remaining calm and mindful of your tone. And then that consistency and carryover. I think you know, our role in such a complex initial situation where the child has been referred to five different specialists essentially is saying, okay, let, we're obviously going to work with the child, but that's not going to change things tomorrow. But here's some things you could start doing today to start moving the needle to where it's a more functional way to communicate at home. So, yeah. Yeah. I find like in evaluations, parents want like, what can I do until therapy starts, you know, and talk about the journey and everything, what they can do at home. Uh, Megan, can you go back to the case study quickly? Yeah. I know we're going to wrap up here. Um, just ABA. <laughs> I feel like we could have a whole episode on that. I don't know <laughs> what y'all's thoughts are. I feel like anytime um, I talk about ABA, I, I come from a standpoint of just emotions and anecdotes and not like facts. I just, I feel like I don't have a good knowledge base of ABA. Um, I don't know what you all have seen in your practice, but I, I just feel like sometimes it's a little bit intense. I don't know how appropriate it is, it is all the time. And I, the clinic that I was in, in a different state, um, it just tended to get just handed out. Like it, it was for, you know, everyone with, with ASD needed ABA. So if you want to share your thoughts. Um, so I, I like what you just said that. So I don't like that many people try to just uh, push this approach on anyone who's diagnosed with autism. That's what the, that's the issue I have. Whether or not it works for children that's specific to the child, just like I said, there's no cookie cut approach to treatment, to intervention, to strategies we use. I think there's no cookie cut approach to um, to systems of, of treatment that we use with children. Um, I would tell this family, so it says the parents were hesitant, the, the parents are saying they're hesitant about this approach. I would tell them, like I believe Heidi mentioned in our last um, um, show, do your own research. Um, it, it's good to get input from families who've been through things, but your child is a different child. They're their own being. Um, they come with their own upbringing, their own culture, their own um, level of performance. I would say do your research um, see what's out there on it from like a research perspective, talk to a clinician who does this approach, go to the center, see what they offer, offer, see if, if it's, if it's possible for you to do a trial, if that's something that you're open to, but I would never say to only base it on someone else's experience because your child is not that person's child. Um, so again, whether or not it works for everyone, I don't know. I do know 
I do work with a lot of children who are diagnosed with autism and a, and a good percentage of them are using ABA and another percentage are not using ABA. Some parents love it. They talk highly about it. They absolutely are happy for it. Some are begging to get it. They can't get it. Others just hate it. So I think it's very specific to the child and how they're performing and what their individual needs are. Well said, Desanya. I can't, yeah, that's all I would say. <laughs> For the child, and you, there's not, yeah, I've seen all three scenarios, like, yes, no, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> that's also a great way to put it. Honestly. Um, well, let's, let's wrap up y'all. Thank you both so much for your time and sharing all of those different perspectives. Um, it's really helpful to know how to use our resources in a bunch of different ways and, and the versatility of all of them. Um, so thank you everyone for listening in. We can't wait to gather next month for another show to talk about our next collection of resources. Um, and we want to thank all you therapists out there for making therapy informative, empowering, and person-centered. Thank you all. See you next time.